that was actually where Coming Apart came from. I was going to sleep one night, and this voice in my head said, Dear Sister. And it was Claire's letter to Ava, and that was the first thing that happened in the story. And then I had to, I actually got up and wrote the letter down. But the next day, I just sort of sat there and stared at it and went, so who are these women? (laughs) Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the show. Today, I have a guest. I am so excited to share this interview with you. Um, It's episode 12 of season five, and I'm going to share an interview I had with Karen Heenan. So last year, I read her book, Coming Apart, and it released in October. And I'm so excited to share this with you because I really enjoyed this book. And the second book, the next in the series, is coming out on April 18th. So you will get to read both books soon if you buy them. Karen Heenan was a delight to speak with. She is super high energy. She publishes her own books, and she'll tell us all about why she went indie, as well as everything about this book coming apart and the series, the new book that's coming out. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Karen Heenan. Karen, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Your novel, Coming Apart, released October 18th, 2022. Can you tell me about this book? Oh, it's a book that I wanted to write for a long time, but I got sidetracked into Tudor history first because that was my first love. Mm. But uh, this Coming Apart is set in Pennsylvania during the Great Depression. And the inspiration started a long time ago because that was the era that my dad and a lot of my relatives grew up in. So I heard stories about hardships and all, you know, these interesting things that, you know, as a lower middle class kid in the 70s, I still couldn't conceive of. Right. And some de- somewhere along the line, it turned into a story that resembles none of their stories. Um, it's a book about two sisters. Um, my short tagline I have for it is a woman who's lost everything, her sister who has everything, and the child who means everything to both of them. Mm-hmm. So I read this book last summer when you sent me an advanced copy, and I just loved it. I mean, I also have relatives who grew up in coal mining, in a coal mining town in Pennsylvania. And so like my great grandfather was a coal miner. And yeah, and it actually probably not for him, but yeah, probably not. However, um, I'm just fascinated by his story. So that is part of what drew me to it. But you spoke a little bit about your inspiration. Do you have any more to share about how this book came together for you and and how that, you know, the stories of your um, ancestors led you to put together this novel that encapsulates that, but also other um, situations? Well, when I, when I finished it, I really didn't think there were that many resemblances to my family. Mm. And then looking at it afterward, um, I realized that the two aunts who I grew up with were sisters. They were three years apart. And even into their 50s and 60s, they fought like cats and dogs and <laughs> loved each other fiercely. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, just because their stories aren't Ava and Claire, right? the relationship is there. Yeah. And then a lot of Claire's problems with fertility, I think, stem from my mom's stories about her mother. Mm. Her mother had lost five or six babies before my mom was born. Wow. And, you know, it was 
it was both a physical and mental health issue for her after that fact. She never, her body never recovered from everything it had gone through. And I don't think, you know, her marriage and her mental health did either. Um, my mom lost her mother really young. Mm. But just all these little bits and pieces of family stories get wedged in your brain and they show up in, you know, completely unexpected places. And you don't even always recognize them yes. until you look at it after the fact. Right. I mean, when I finished the book, um, I realized that the the whole point of it was not even what I'd expected. You know, the, the relation, I mean, I knew the relationship between the sisters was primary, but I didn't really realize that that was, I mean, it's it's not a romance. It's a it's a historical or women's fiction novel. But the the key relationship in that book is the two of them coming back together, and that was not what I'd started out writing. Interesting. So then, would you call yourself a pantser? I I pants within a structure. It's right. hard to be a complete pantser with historical. Yeah. Because what what I try to do these days is, I you know I I know what period I'm writing in, and I will just do the the shallow wikipedia search first you know like what are the top events of this time period in this area mm -hmm. and i make myself a timeline for however many characters i have plus the history and i try to figure out which places they're going to interact with actual history in some way or another and then where the story can weave in and out of those events that i can't change okay so you have that structure, but what did you what did you think this story was going to be about when you started writing it? Uh, the the book changed several times over its over its um life, which was enough to make me bang my head on the walls. <laughs> sure. Originally, um well, my first three books, the Tudor series, were all written in first person, which is where I'm comfortable. Um and I decided for this book, since I wanted to have the two narrators, that I would do this one in third, because the idea of having two first-person narrators just didn't appeal. And I started writing it, and I couldn't figure out why I wasn't happy with it. And I decided that maybe it was just that Claire, the wealthier sister, her problem seemed so insubstantial compared to Ava's that maybe I should just cut Claire out and make it Ava's book. Mm. And I tried that. And Ava in third person was better, but then I didn't have anybody to bounce her off of. And I needed that second point of view. Yeah. And I ended up going back to dual POV, but I made them in first person and they were very happy there. And not only that, Ava insisted on being first person present, mm. which was not something I'd intended either. Right. And then just to, you know, just just to ice the cake of let's make the author crazy, um, <laughs> Ava's uh Ava's 12-year-old daughter Pearl ended up with some diary entries scattered throughout the story. Yes. Because she's my little Greek chorus. She gets to see things about the two adult women in her life that they don't always see in each other. Yeah. I loved and that. I loved her her perspective being thrown in too. That was great. She, she came in really late in the game. She came in in the next to last draft. Wow. That's amazing. But she had a lot to say and, you know, yes. A lot of things happen in front of kids and people don't always watch what they say in front of them. So mm -hmm. she got to be a really good witness for, you know, certain things and she also 
you know, some of her experiences were able to cast back to things that happened to the sisters when they were young. Yes. And I felt like that really helped. Yes, definitely. Now, why did you choose the 1930s? What drew you to that time period? Um, it wasn't just the family stories. I mean, I, I, I was intrigued by the period because of those. But when I started looking around, I realized just how little fiction there actually is set in the Depression. Mm, okay. I mean, you know, I guess because it's bracketed by two world wars and then you throw in the Roaring Twenties, the Thirties just seem kind of sad and badly dressed. (laughs) You know, there's not, there aren't major, major things happening like on the surface. There was a lot of stuff happening in the background, but so much of the Thirties, it was personal history and it was personal stories. It wasn't a world war or, you know, a large event, but most of us, our lives are small events, but they're not small to us. So I really wanted to, you know, just work through a normal family living through these times. And it was also an exploration of, you know, how women pull together sometimes to get by because during the depression, a lot of times men couldn't find work, but quite often either women did because they were working for lower wages, but at least they could find something. Or in a lot of cases, men would go off to find work and women would be left, you know, holding everything together. Mm. And I just wanted to, you know, look at that and just really think about how how much women have had to, you know, carry sometimes under the radar. Right. You know, most most things you think about with the depression are men in like employment lines or soup kitchens or, you know, hobos riding the rails. But a lot of those men left people behind. Yes. Yeah. And the things they had to do in the absence of their husbands or fathers is, yeah. A lot of times going very far out of their comfort zones because there weren't really any other options. You either found a way to get by or really bad things happened to the people you loved. Right. I mean, Ava's Ava's sole purpose in this book is to keep her family together, more or less, come hell or high water, and she's up to her knees most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'd like to know more about the relationship between Ava and Claire. One reviewer said, coming apart is a touching story of sisterhood in all its raw, messy, challenging, triumphant beauty. And I would I would agree completely with that. That's like one of the things. Yeah, that, that review did make me do a little dance yes. around my living room. <laughs> I'm sure. So what do you want readers to know about this relationship between Ava and Claire? Well, they they start they're they're three years apart and they started out as very, very close mm-hmm. sisters. And as they grew up, they, you know, as a lot of kids do, started wanting different things. Ava basically paired off with her best childhood friend when she was in grade school, and that was the boy she grew up to marry. Mm -hmm. And Claire knew equally young that that was not the life she wanted. Her sister was duplicating their mother's life right down to, you know, the husband, the house, the number of kids, and all she wanted was to get out. Mm -hmm. And there was just the, the initial discomfort from the beginning of realizing that you know they wanted to they wanted such very different things and i think it made them back off and look at each other and you know wonder how much of the closeness was really there if they couldn't imagine each other's lives um claire left home right after high school got a job in a hotel and that's where she met her husband mm-hmm. 
Whereas Ava didn't get to finish high school because her father died and she had to leave to help her mother support the family. Claire was the only kid who got to go all the way through school. Right. So there's, you know, there's some resentments there. And I don't know if you, um, if you read it, but um, for uh, my mailing, for anybody who signs up to my mailing list, I do have a prequel novella, which is Uh, um, the week. The weekend of Claire's wedding. So it's just a little, it's a little bit of after Ava got married and, you know, Claire leaving her family to this new life. And it's really where the, they, they both say goodbye to the relationship they had and the prickly mm. relationship really starts to kick in at that point. Oh, that's I, cool. I wanted, I wanted to do something to lead people into this new series. And I also, you know, wanted to answer a few questions for myself, but there weren't room for, flashbacks of that length. Right. Sure. Oh, that's great. That's a great idea to provide that. Um, so I just felt like your novel is so honest, like showing the nitty gritty of not just Ava and Claire's relationships, but relationship with each other, but also, um, the other relationships like Ava's marriage to Daniel. It just showed so many of the complexities of marital love and, um, I just, the difficulties in spite of like, yeah, they love each other, but there are still these disagreements and, and there's anger and there, but there's also coming back to love every time. So, and then her relationship with her children was very raw and nuanced too. Um, so none of those relationships are perfect. I think you did a beautiful job of just showing how flawed our love for one another is as humans. Um, how do you think you manage to portray those relationships so realistically? In some respects, I'm not really sure. I mean, I don't. I I am married, but I don't have kids, and mm. I'm an only child. Right. But thankfully, I have a lot of friends who absolutely will overshare if asked the right <laughs> questions. And I I have one friend who I only know um, from an online sewing group that I used to belong to, and. I reached out to her because she has 10 children. Wow. And I reached out and said, you know, I I am writing this book and the woman is going to have, you know, at least five kids. And I can imagine myself into some of this, but not all of it. Could I ask you a few questions? And she's like, oh, you can ask me anything you want. Oh, wow. And I sent her a list and she probably sent me 10 pages in response. That's great. I mean- even even including, you know, she answered questions like, have you ever felt judged for having, you know, quote unquote, too many children? Mm. You know, have you ever resented your husband for not picking up, you know, his quote unquote share of the work? You know, how do you how much do you dump on the older kids simply because you have to? Right. So there was a a lot of reading, a lot of questioning, and a lot of just staring into space and letting all that stuff gel and turn into something completely different. That's always, that's my favorite part is the magic. You take all this stuff in and something completely different comes out and you know that's where it came from. But I don't know about you, but I can't explain how. Yeah, well, (laughs) that's a, a good answer. That's true. I mean, a lot of times you're just really good at one particular part of the work and you don't really know why. So. And you, it sometimes it's better not to ask it because yeah. it does it, it does it without too much investigation, and maybe we're better off that way. Right? If you analyze it too much, you mm-hmm. tend to 
mess it up. Right. So I'm curious about your, um, I guess your history, your own history. Have you always been a writer? Can you tell me about your path to publication? I've always been a writer. And before I realized that I could write books, I, you know, I've been a reader since I first discovered what those square things on the bookshelf were. Mm. My mom was a big reader. And, you know, my earliest memory of books was her putting up the hand, like, unless you're bleeding, let me finish this chapter. And (laughs) all all I wanted to know was where she went when she stuck her nose in those books. Mm. And I learned to read pretty early. And I found out, and I think one of the happiest days in my childhood was the first time I gave her the hand and said, I'll be done as soon as I finish this chapter. (laughs) (laughs) And she couldn't say a word. (laughs) She taught me that. Right. Um, And then not too long after that, I realized somebody had to write all those books. And It seemed a lot more doable than my other childhood ambition, which was ballerina. Mm. And I was a klutz and I didn't know it at the time, but I couldn't see. I didn't get, I didn't get glasses till I was nine, but I was, I should have probably been one of those cute little toddlers with the glasses on the leash because I walked into things all the time. Yeah. But you know, they figured out she reads all the time. She can see. Wasn't until third grade that we figured out that I didn't. Wow. So I started writing probably in second or third grade, just, you know, random little kid stories, but it never left me. And it was always, for a long time, it wasn't anything I even thought about publishing. It was just what I did to kind of blow off steam after the day job that I hated. I was a legal assistant for 30 years, oh, and wow. I will never go back into a cubicle. It would ha- it would, I would end up in a smaller, more padded cubicle if you got me back into an office. <laughs> Uh-oh. It just it too long. Yeah. You shouldn't you shouldn't be sentenced to do something just because you're good at it. <laughs> oh. Wow. So um back I guess it was around 2015 when I finally decided, you know, that I should try um I should try to publish 2014 or 2015. Um it was there was a lot of um you know, the Tudor series was still on TV and there's always mm-hmm. interest in that. And that was that was the book that I had been working on off and on for I don't even know how long. I always joke that if it was a child, it would be accruing college debt. <laughs> but it was just something I wrote on and then I put it down and then I'd tweak it a little bit and then I'd learn something new and I'd go back to it. And I just enjoyed writing it. It wasn't really written for anybody but me. Mm. But then I decided just to see what would happen. And and I started submitting to agents. And that was painful. And that um, I lost track at about 86 rejections. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I did eventually get an agent. Wow. Well, that's well, good for Um, you. That is an accomplishment. It was. And then, you know, she she made a few suggestions, including the book is just too darn long. Mm. And, you know, well, since I was writing it for me, I had no real concept of like page limits and genre expectations. Right. So I did cut it down. I mean, there was a part of me that was, you know, muttering in the back of my head, how dare you criticize my perfect prose? (laughs) Um, Because I was still in the really, really really personally attached to it phase. Right, sure. And I, you know, I resubmitted it to her and she started shopping it around. But 
I I think I think it was a bad pairing in two respects in that first of all I was too inexperienced to really know what I should be expecting as far as like this is what's happening this yeah. is why it got turned I didn't really get any of that mm. and when I tried to follow up it sort of felt like I was bothering her and then after a year she said no this isn't saleable Tudor fiction really is you know not a big thing right now um so here's your book back. Oh my goodness. And that's um difficult. That was that that hurt. I mean, I wasn't feeling really positive at that point anyway since it had been a year. Right. But the fact that she didn't ask if I was working on anything else. Yeah. That was that was kind of the hurtful one. It's like, "Oh, she doesn't really have enough faith that I can do this." Mm. And I kind of stepped back and sulked for a little bit. Right. And then we moved and a bunch of stuff happened and I really kind of let it go until 2018 when I sort of spur of the moment did a pitch contest on Twitter. Oh. And um, it's one of those, you know, if this was the pre 280 character Twitter, so it was pitch your book in 140 characters with the appropriate hashtag, and the only people who were supposed to like the tweets were either agents or publishers. And I, f I found out about it, thought it was a good idea, and went, yeah, but I can't possibly do that today. I can't write a synopsis to save my life, the idea of doing it in that short of a period. <laughs> and I went upstairs, and then I thought about it, and went, What's the, what is the worst that's going to happen? I came down, typed out three really rough pitches, scheduled them, walked away from the computer and shut my phone off for the day. Mm. And that night uh, I looked and I had gotten likes from two agents and one small press. Wow. Uh, the one agent still hasn't gotten back to me. So I'm going to take that as a no. <laughs> that was 2018. <laughs> Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, the second one, she read a sample. She liked it. She asked for the full. She liked that, but she said she would suggest rewriting it because it was, you know, Tudor era historical. And she thought that was a very, you know, saleable thing. She said, but rewrite it in more of a Philippa Gregory style with more costumes and more descriptions. Mm. And I thought about that and I'm like, um, if I've waited this long to do it, I don't want to do it in somebody else's style. Yeah. And I've read Philippa Gregory. She tells a good story, but she's not as historically accurate as I would like to be. Mm. And, you know, the book was also about a court servant. It wasn't really about the costumes. Things were mentioned in passing, but it wasn't, you know, the layers of dressing and undressing. So I said, I said no to that agent. And I ended up signing with the small press because they had a fairly you know, collaborative approach. And I stayed with them for two books. And it, it was a really overall good experience, but we were kind of going in different directions. I was their only historical author at that point. Mm. And, you know, it made it difficult for their other authors and I to kind of promote each other because I was always the odd one out. Yeah. And were those, those are both Tudor books? Yeah, the first two books in my series came out through them. And in 
October of last year, uh, no, October of 21, I reached out and said, you know, this has been a really good experience. Um, I do have the third book to the series, but um, I would really like to talk, you know, sit down and talk to you all about getting my rights back and what that would entail. Mm. You know, I'm like, it truly is me. It's not you. I've, I want to try to do this myself. Every time I learn something new, it makes me crazy that I can't immediately go try it. Right. Because everything's not mine. And, mm. uh, you know, like certain marketing things you want to try. Yes. It's, it's hard because if it's a success, you're only going to make back a fraction of what you might have put into it. Yes, that's true. So I decided I wanted to go fully indie. And because I was a little more hands-on than perhaps some of their other authors, I actually already owned the rights to my book covers because I hadn't liked my first cover. And I went and hired my own cover artist Mm. and sent them a new cover and said, hey, could you swap this out? And they just kind of shook their heads, but they did it. (laughs) So I I had to reformat and learn a few new things, but at least I got to keep the covers that I really liked. Yeah, that's true. And then I put out the third book. And then I did an omnibus edition of the three of them. I mean, I'm going to go back to that series eventually with three more, but I wanted oh, no. to take a break and do the 30s books because they were really getting loud in my head. And I was afraid the sisters wouldn't hang out if I made them wait for three more books. Right. Yeah. And we're reaching a point in like mid Elizabethan history that I'm not as familiar with. And I knew it was going to take a lot more research. Mm. And not all the books that I wanted to do the research in are available in ebook format. And I'm kind of holding off the heavy research for this one until I get my cataract surgery this month. Oh. So I will be able to read books without a huge magnifying glass. <laughs> that that will be wonderful, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that will be. I've been putting it off and putting it off. And I finally just, when I realized I wasn't seeing colors the same with oh. both eyes, it's like, you know what? You've, you've, my theory with almost everything is get out of my own way. And it's like, I can do it with publishing, but it's like, you know what? This is another one. Get out of your own way. Get your eyes fixed. Yeah. You need them. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's, thank God we have ways to see better today. That Yeah. And everybody I know who's had this surgery is like, oh, it's, you know, it's such a, it's so easy. You're not going to, you know, you're going to be so mm-hmm. mad that you waited. I'm like, I can handle being mad at myself that I waited. This is already more doctor's appointments than I've had in five years, and I haven't gotten to the surgeon yet. Oh, yeah. So why do you feel like self-publishing is the right, um, I think you called it your happy place when we were talking ahead of time. But um, I know you mentioned, you know, you like to have that control and that ability to use your own work. Um, Are there other things that have made this a really good fit for you? I just, I like learning new things and self-publishing. It's like the uh, things change so rapidly and, you know, there are different methods of doing things. And I like learning. I, I, I like knowing that if something I do doesn't work, it is up to me to figure out why. Mm. Like I've, I've kind of worked my way through um, Amazon ads this year and I've at least got a somewhat functioning grip on those at least until it changes again so my project for the new year is um to try to get a handle on facebook ads and i'm also going to look into um doing audiobooks for the ava and claire series um not myself i've reached out to podium and uh, i'm trying to think of the other 
company that pairs with indie authors to do these. I think it's Tantor. Um, they provide the service and then they take a cut of the audiobook fee. But, you know, I that is something that I'm only so comfortable doing myself. And I know there's a large audio audience out there that I'm not really reaching. I have Songbird in a Wider World. My first two books are on audio. I still need to do the third one, but I just feel like that's something, you know, every once in a while you have to look at the 9 million projects you're thinking about and wonder which ones are actually a good use of your time. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure that audio is the best use of my time, but I would like to have them. Yes. Yeah. So it seems like, I mean, I, I took a look at your blog and you listed, um, you did like a recap of last year. It seems like you're very self-motivated in um, all these projects. You're trying to keep up with all the work of self-publishing and marketing and, and all of that. Um, I it, I think part of it comes from being an only child. I fear boredom more than almost anything. <laughs> So between fear of boredom and 30 years of organizing people, I, I ha- my, my to-do lists have sub-lists. Yeah. But, you know, that's how most of my life happens. And I don't sit still well. And when I finally do, I fall down like a tree. So I just run until I stop and then I crash for a while and then I pick up and run into another wall. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I make myself tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's that's good because you probably sleep well at the end of a full day. Generally, and then I but my other thing with that is some of my best writing ideas are when you finally start to relax the grip on your brain and you start to drift off to sleep oh, and oh, yes. Then it's like something runs across your field of vision and it's like what was that? I need to write that down. Right. Because that, that was actually where Coming Apart came from. I was going to sleep one night, and this voice in my head said, Dear Sister. And it was Claire's letter to Ava, and that was the first thing that happened in the story. And then I had to – I actually got up and wrote the letter down. But the next day, I just sort of sat there and stared at it and went, So who are these women? <laughs> <laughs> and, so I, and I had to backtrack from the letter. Wow. That's so cool. But that was where it, that was where it, it started. That's amazing. Uh, I find that kind of thing so fascinating where the ideas just kind of drop seemingly out of nowhere. And I've learned by now that if something that looks even vaguely promising shows up, I have to get up and write it down because otherwise it might not be there in the morning. Right. Yeah, that's true. So what are you working on now? Um, Is it the next book in this series? Yes, the sequel to Coming Apart, which is coming closer, that is due out on April 18th, and um, I am working on edits to it right now. I'm working on edits and cleaning my house to avoid working on edits. (laughs) That's what we all do, isn't it? Yeah. My house should be cleaner, considering. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Yeah, so I'm working on that and there will definitely be a third book, but I think that's where they stop. I have a I have some random notes written down about the third book, but I haven't really gone further than that with it. I know what the first scene is for each of the two characters, but I have no idea how it ends. Okay. And that kind of throws me off because I always know where I'm 
I know always know my end point, and right now I don't have one, so I haven't mm-hmm. learned enough about either the period or what they're doing. Yeah. So, um, the next book coming closer, it's going to re- yes. release very close to the release of this podcast. So, I'd encourage listeners to order both of these books um, so they can be ready for the third one when it releases. But can you tell us anything about the second book without you know spoilers or anything? Um, the second book. Well, the first book was about the sisters finding their way back to each other and becoming sisters again and remembering what that means. The second book is really about them finding their own strength. Um, Claire is a lot more secure in herself, and she finds – at the beginning of the second book, she and her husband go to Washington for um, FDR's inauguration, and she – she sort of gets a little bit of a high off of the New Deal and people doing things, and she's trying to find a way to make a difference in Philadelphia, and mm-hmm. she gets in a little bit over her head on her good intentions. Uh. And Ava has moved with her family to be closer to her sister, mm-hmm. and she's setting up a dressmaking business and you know, trying to figure out if she can manage to raise her children, run a business, and have a life all at the same time, or if that would possibly call her, cause her to explode. You know, there's a limit to how much she can tolerate. She's not the most patient of women. Right. <laughs> but she must have a certain level of patience to have all those children. And Yeah, I think chaos is kind of her comfort place because if there's so much going on, she doesn't really have the time to sit and think deeply about some of the things that have gone wrong. Yes. You can just sort of put things in park until they don't hurt as much. And if you keep having you know, chaos in your house, you never have silence. Right. That's very true. So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? I think it really just, I think historical fiction shows us that, you know, we haven't really changed that much over centuries. We're still facing a lot of the same problems. We are still sometimes our own worst enemies. Mm And I think it makes us look at situations we might be facing today from a slightly different perspective and see that, you know, it's something people have always had to go through. And, right. you know, I, hopefully it gives us a little bit more empath- empathy and, you know, understanding of just the world around us. Yes. Yeah, that's great. So, Karen, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Well, I'm in all the usual places, but I would say the best place to start would be my website, which is karenheenan.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. I promise I will not spam you. I send something out once a month, but you'll also get um, the prequel novella to Coming Apart there if you want to learn a little of the sister's prehistory. Yeah. I'm on Facebook at Karen Heenan Writer and on Twitter, so long as Twitter lasts, at Karen underscore Heenan. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Allison. This was fun. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Karen. I, for one, am very excited about the release of Coming Closer next week, April 18th. So make sure you head to the show notes to find the links to both Coming Apart and Coming Closer. 
as well as other important links. If they cannot be found in your listening app, you can find the show notes at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Now, before you leave your listening app, make sure you rate and review the show because even though it only takes like a minute of your time to write a review, it will help other readers to find historical fiction unpacked. And we want that to happen. So make sure you do that. And then you can head to the show notes where you will find links to Karen Heenan's um, website and to her books. And you'll also find other important links, like a link to our Facebook group, which you can also find on Facebook at Historical Fiction Unpacked Podcast Group. And then you can also follow us on Instagram at Historical Fiction Unpacked. And if you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash Allison Treat. That's Allison with one L. But of course, the link to that is also in the show notes. See, there are so many ways you can support the show and support authors as well. So go to the show notes to find all the important links for that purpose. Now I'm going to leave you with some words by Susan Cabell about sisters. One sister is part of one's essential self and eternal presence of one's heart, soul, and memory. So if you have a sister, maybe give her a call or a text today. And also keep reading historical fiction, my friends. I will talk to you again next week.